Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. Before they medically discharged me, this one nurse came up to me and she said, if there was any team of people that I would take to me downrange, even despite what's going on with you right now, it would be you. And she mentioned these four other guys because she goes, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that despite what was going on with you, my patients would get the best care. I told her, thank you. That's exactly what it would be like. I, I wouldn't shortchange these, you know, none of us would. But, you know, these guys meant a lot to me. They meant a lot to me. And they meant a lot to us. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Stigma Free Vet Zone. Today we're going to fly out to Montana and visit with Bill Austin. One of our more exciting guests who has spent almost 31 years, 30 and a half years in the military, and has been active during a large number of conflicts, which is unusual for us. Typically, we have veterans who have been in one conflict or two conflicts, but Bill was born and raised in Delaware and lived there until he enlisted into the Army. And then he and his wife moved to northwestern Montana in 2012 after being medically retired from the military due to a diagnosis with a TBI and PTSD. His MOS in the Army was first as a radio operator and then went into the infantry and was a light infantry scout. In 1994, Bill switched over to the Air, Air Guard unit where he became a flight medic. His military career started in January 19, 1981 to being just discharged in August of 2011. He served a total of 30 years and six months and retired as a Master Sergeant. Let's get out to Montana and welcome Master Sergeant Bill Austin. Good morning, Bill. Hey, good morning, Mike, and thank you very much for allowing me a chance to talk to everybody out there, including yourself. Well, well, we certainly appreciate it. And I'll tell you what, you've got such a great story. Let's get right to it. Uh, tell us a little bit about Bill Austin before the military, where you grew up, uh, your interests, that sort of thing. Primarily, I, well, as, it's, as you pointed out in, in my bio, I was born and raised in Delaware, lived there all my life until 1981. Most of my adult career out there, I, I ended up working on a a horse farm with racehorses as a teenager. Then, you know, th like I said, that lasted till 81. I actually went to a trade school. 
even before I went to college and was studying uh, aviation mechanics. And of course, I the first the, the the free time for myself was pretty much you know listening to music, hanging out with friends, shooting pool. I liked to hunt and fish, although I didn't do a lot of it then. And of course. You know, I'm sorry for repeating myself, but then in 81, I, I joined the U.S. Army. And from there, that's where my career started taking off. Well, let, let, let's stick uh, before the military, Bill. Uh, and don't worry about repeating yourself. That, that's good. Uh, to uh, No problem with that. But in your, in your youth, it's always uh, curiosity for soldiers. What about religious background or, or, or pets or animals, or that sort of thing? Play a musical instrument. Where, where did you have interest there? Oh, uh, although I never completed it, I did start interest with playing the alto saxophone. I think it's an incredible instrument. It really is. It's got a, a unique sound to it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty versatile in, in a lot of different compositions, for lack of a better way of putting it. Yeah, I had dogs most of my life. They're incredible creatures. In terms of religion, yeah, we were made to go to church. So, and that was... You know, that wasn't, you know, in our day and age, Mike, you remember how it was. Your parents told you what to do, and you, you pretty much did it without too much questioning. Absolutely. So, you know, it was every day, you know, every Sunday it was get up, go to Sunday school, go to church, and then come home and have a family dinner. I mean, that, that was the normal schedule, you know, sure. for a Sunday. And then afterwards, Sunday in the wintertime, of course, was usually spent watching football. Football in Delaware. I can't remember what professional football team is in Delaware, but I'm guessing that New England Patriots. No, actually, the closest one would have been the Philadelphia Eagles oh, or okay. Pittsburgh. Of course, yeah. and then you had Washington Redskins. Oh, yeah. North of that, you had uh, New York Giants, New York Jets. But I was the oddball in the group. I started out being a Minnesota Vikings fan and have continued to be a Vikings fan wow. all these years. Good for you. Okay, so now, so now we get up to 1981. What was it that uh, your interest in joining the military and what were your expectations when you joined the military? Well, again, growing up during dinner time, it was, was not uncommon to be sitting there watching TV and watching, you know, the Vietnam War on the evening news. And I told my dad, I said, you know, I want to go to Vietnam. And he's like, Why? I said, well, you served our country. My dad was in World War II in the Navy. And I said, I want to serve my country too. And, you know, I mean, as a young kid, you don't, you know, you, you think about these things, but I don't think on the grand scheme or, or the bigger picture. So honest to God, the truth is, I can't tell you outside of that why I joined the military. It's just something that I knew that I had to do. It was something that, you know, there was a drive to do that. So, you, so would it be fair to say, Bill, that you had the family patriotism, country honor, that sort of thing? Oh, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and I mean, even to this day, I, I, you know, our country isn't perfect. But, you know, of course, compared to some of the other countries I've experienced life in, we're pretty lucky to be where we are. I mean, okay. I, I stand by that. That's right. I, I absolutely mm -hmm. do. So, so now you, in 1981, you've entered the military and you would go yep. on to serve in during the war in Granada. Uh, you would serve two tours in Bosnia in 1997 to 98. 
They supported in the war in Kosovo in 2000, would go on yes. to Afghanistan in 2002, Iraq and Afghanistan 203 to 204, and again to Afghanistan in 209. But uh, in the middle of this, in the middle of your military service, you changed from the, mil- from the Army to the, to the Air Guard. Explain yes. a little bit about the, your, your experience in the Army and then move on to the Air Guard. Oh, well, I mean, you know, of course, they're two, two totally different missions, to be outright. The other side is, too, I mean, in the Army, there's a little more tendency of, you know, your chain of command and so forth, where in the infantry level, you know, chain of command and following orders and so forth is pretty much paramount. And, you know, of course, when you're put in a conflict in the Army, sometimes you don't have time to question what needs to be done. Your, your leaders need to be able to direct and accomplish the mission, and they don't need to, you know, be explaining why. And, of course, the other side with the Air Force is, and I learned this, this was one of the hard things that, you know, after doing 13 years in the, in the Army, and, and like I said, especially doing Scout, Light Infantry Scout, there was times where I would hear when I was in the, in the Air Guard, and I, and I don't mean to bash them, because that's not the point of this, but there was times where the enlisted would question some of the instructions that were given to them. And, of course, for me coming out from the Army into that, it was a really big adaption because, you know, for me, you didn't do that. Your leaders told you, your superiors told you what to do, and, and you did it. You just executed. There wasn't too much question about it. So, so, it was, so now, it, during your time in the Army, Bill, you, you had the tour, the, the support of the war in Granada. You yes. had the, the, the two tours in Bosnia and the support in Kosovo. Did you believe in the missions? Or was it important for you to believe in the mission? Or as you just explained, did you just take the orders and follow them? Well, I think it's a combination of, of all those things, honestly. I mean, you know, soldiers, you know, the military personnel go where they're told to, to go and do what they're told to do. I mean, and this is, I mean, I, 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 although it's a very... Very, a very bland way of putting it, that's exactly what, what accomplishes the mission when you go out the doors. You know, a conglomerate of, of people from all walks of life, meaning the military life, and they support one another and they help one another through the different functions that they do uh, to accomplish what, what the goal is. So in terms of like Bosnia and so forth, I was in the Air Guard at that time because I left the Army in 1994 and switched over to an Air Guard unit. So from 1994 forward, I was in an Air Guard unit. And, you know, from there, being an Air, doing AeroVacs, you know, it, it's a much different role. So, yeah, I believed in the mission. And the reason being, I mean, at least for me personally, I understood what it was like to be in the infantry. I understood what it's like to be you know, on the ground, sleeping outside, you know, living in harsh conditions, living in extreme environments. And so for me, it was personal. So when these guys, you know, when these guys or even, you know, some of the, the my sisters in, in the military became hurt or sick, you know, we, we did our utmost to take care of them. And again, for me, it was personal because I know what they went through. And I, I did what I could for them because for me, that was somebody's son or somebody's brother, somebody's husband, somebody's uncle. And, and, and the same follows true with, with, the, you know, with my uh, 
with my sisters in arms. It's the same thing. So for me, it wasn't whether I believed in the mission, it was the mission. And yeah, I believed in taking care of them. And, you know, they deserve the very best for what they put out. This is a, this is really an an excellent point, Bill. So when you're actually dealing, and I would ask you to share a little bit more as you're comfortable sharing on being the the air medic team. It doesn't matter what the mission is. It doesn't matter what if you believe in the mission of the war itself. If you're helping the wounded or the people who are physically sick who need the medical attention, then the mission the mission is always there, and that's to help the person that's in front of you. Share, share yeah. a little bit more about your experience uh, as the air medic. Am I saying that right, air medic? Yeah, air evac. Air evac, yes. Yeah, air evac. Not to be confused with dust off. I mean, some people, oh, so you were in dust off. Right. Well, dust off is uh, primarily used in the Army, and that is the helicopters. But air evac, the difference there is with air evac, we use airplane platforms. So, and not to get into a long, drawn-out, description of of what goes but i was on a liaison team it's a four-man team it was a doctor nurse and two operators and what we would do is we would get these sick and wounded and we would stabilize them you stabilize them enough to get them on an aircraft and back to someplace say like long stool or if it's a critical a critical injury then of course there's times where we got bigger aircraft like the c-17 one of those platforms, and they would literally fly them all the way back to the United States from wherever the theater of operation was. So with that said, with AeroVacs, 90% of your AeroVacs are done by the National Guard and, and the Reserve. And some people might cringe at that, but the best part about that is you have people that are doing civilian jobs, but also have, you know, they're, they're also in the Guard. A lot, most of the percentage of the people in the AeroVac system, their civilian jobs, quite literally, are nurses, EMTs, medical technicians in the hospital. You know, so they're constantly doing their job, which, you know, if you're doing your job and keeping up on your skills, that gives you a much better outcome in the long range when you're dealing with these sick and wounded. But th- th- these are all the technical aspects, and that's the background, the professional. But what about the psychological, the emotional involvement here? I've always, uh, in the interviews and the friends that I have, those in the medical field, the medics, uh, always seem to have had the, the most difficult experience because their job was obviously to trying to keep people alive and, and to do that in, in, the best, uh, in the best condition you could possibly get them in to send them to the rear. Yeah, and I mean... One of the things that you're, you're taught being in the medical field is you don't quit. You don't quit. You don't fail. You know, you, you give everything that you have. And, of course, the, the hard part is, and I think, it's, I think in some ways we really need to change our, our, the mentality of the, of the medical world, including on the civilian side. You know, we're, we're not God. And there are some situations where the injury the injuries and so forth are so extensive that unfortunately that patient's not going to make it the other side to that is that when when it doesn't work out and you do lose a patient it really sticks it really hurts pretty bad you you feel like you failed you feel like you know what did i do wrong you know you know because you're doing everything you can. The, the disadvantage of being in a war environment 
is the fact that number one, you're not in a sterile environment. Number two, you have limited resources. It's not like you can pump all the resources that you have on one person. Because if you have more than one casualty, you got to make sure that you take care of all of them and all of them get, you know, whether it's IVs or, 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 or whatever it takes. And unfortunately, we don't, you know, you don't have the supplies to do that. So, I mean, field medicine is, is just that. It's field medicine. Sometimes it's becoming really creative about how you take care of your patient. An example of that was one of the guys got shot in the neck. And the medic that was with him was really thinking on his feet. And he, he, put a, he applied a pressure bandage on that guy's neck. And how he accomplished this was on the non-wounded side, he took the soldier's arm and raised it up over top of his head. And he put the pressure bandage on the wounded side and then wrapped it, put the pressure bandage literally over the wound and then tied it off on the arm that was up over top of the head. So he was able to control the bleeding, but not stop all the blood flow to the, the, to the, to the brain. Because, I mean, you know, common sense does you don't put a tourniquet or a pressure bandage around somebody's neck and then tie it tight. You just suffocate <laughs> them, you know. <laughs> but, I, but, I mean, that's, that, was, that was quick thinking on that medic's, on that medic's part. Right. I think I mean, when is, I when I think back, Bill, on the medics that I know, it, it is it, oftentimes they receive their training down at Fort Sam Houston and it, mm-hmm. it's medics training. And these guys are 18 years old, 20 years old, 25, 30 years old. And they're trying to do on the battlefield or in preparation to do as you were doing to get them on a flight uh, to a, a more modern uh, hospital equipment. They're trying to do on the battlefield or near the battlefield what a surgeon would have a hard time doing, as you mentioned, in a sterile environment that was well-equipped in a surgical hospital. And that's got to be very, very difficult, especially when you have this aura or sense about yourself that you're not to quit and you're not to fail. I mean, that, that, what an extraordinary thing to ask of a human being when you're dealing, putting someone's life in, in the hands of a medic. I think that, that's yeah. the challenge. And the other part is, I mean, you know, we're human. You know, the medics, the, the, the medical personnel. And, you know, there's a lot of compassion there. And you don't want to fail. You don't want to, you know, you definitely don't deliberately quit. You know, I mean, you just, you do everything. And one of the, you know, talking about guilt was, you know, that's, that's something that my one friend who was discharged the same thing I was, the same time I was. And it was one of those things where, you know, we were talking and he goes, yeah, you're not God. You can't save everybody, but it's your heart that tells you something different. And it's so very true. You carry a lot of guilt for the ones that you lost. And uh, I can't tell you how many times I would tell the guys, don't quit. Don't quit. We're almost there. And, uh, you know, sometimes they just wouldn't listen. So. Or couldn't listen. Yeah. I think one of the most disheartening sounds was there was a certain terminology that they would use when when we were getting wounded. And, of course, you're, you're getting ready to receive these wounded and so forth. And one of the worst things you wanted to hear is getting inbound and saying we have an angel flight, which meant the, the troop or troops didn't make it. And it's, you know, it was disheartening because you, you didn't even get a chance to, you know, help these guys out. 
I, I had a friend who was a, a combat medic, have quite a few of them and met quite a few over the years, who said that during their time when they were healing or help, not healing, but helping the wounded, they had to completely forget about themselves. They had to shut off their own emotions. And they would say, this yeah. is not about me. I have to do this for this person. And yeah. did, did you come up against that? Absolutely. One of my friends was blown up twice in less than five minutes. And he was severely hurt. And I didn't even recognize him. And it wasn't until he started talking that I realized it was my friend. And I was just you know, devastated. I mean, you know, your friend. And I could remember, I, I literally wanted to cry because I was so scared because of the extent of his, his injuries from, from both those blasts. And that's exactly right. I'm like, you know what? Suck it up. This isn't about you. This is about him. And, and you, know, you, you, you know, I was just trying to do everything I could because I had, you know, you, 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 you're talking to him. You're 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 trying to keep him gone. You're trying to give him, you know, a, a positive outlook. You're trying to let them know that hey, there's you're going to be okay. I'm going to take care of you. And the one thing that I didn't know at the time until years later when he told me was that he had these little bits of shrapnel in his eyes, and he couldn't see me, but he could hear me. And back at the hospital, they took him in the OR and you know patched him up. And I was walking down the hall, and he was coming out of the OR. And he said, I was, I was the, first, the first person that he saw. And uh, I felt so privileged that, that, I was, that I was there and that I was the first person that he saw, you know. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was a hard one. And the worst part was the next day I went back to the hospital to see him and he was gone. And I thought he had died because his, his wounds were pretty, pretty extensive. So anyway. And so would this be a continuing sense over time? I want to be careful how I ask this bill, but if this ask it outright, I'll ask it outright. Uh, So this happens once, but then now before the next injury might come along, are you already preparing yourself emotionally tightening up? I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to feel this. I'm just going to go in. So, so over time you become emotionally numb to this and just do your job. Yeah. And, but yet, in the same token, you can't become so mechanical because, I mean, there, there, there comes a, a, you know, yeah, you can shut your emotions off and you can, you know, do what you got to do to deal with it. But the other side is you can't get so mechanical because there's a lot of critical things that have to happen. And if you get so turned off about what's going on, turning off your emotions and so forth, then I think you start losing that compassion, number one. And number two, you can really make a lot of mistakes. So it's it's a... I guess in a lot of ways, it's a very delicate balancing act, you know? It's a, a delicate balancing act, but also you mentioned that your team was four, four people, two doctors, a nurse, and yourself. There, yeah, must, have been to, there, there must have been times, I'm, I, or I should ask, were, were there times when you actually had to do the doctor's work or the nurse's work because they, there, there were too many people to be treated by two doctors? Well, I mean, when you, when you get into a, a triage situation like that, there's more people around, and, you, and of course, you pull from your resources. Whatever around is what you use. You, you, you know, I mean, I'm sorry for being, I got to say it bluntly, but I don't mean to be so callous about it. But you save the ones you can save and the ones you can't. Well, 
you know, that's, that's, that's field medicine in that type of environment. I mean, there was also plenty of guys that they didn't make it, but we kept them alive because they wanted their organs donated. And so you did what you had to do to keep them functioning. And they went on the aircraft too. And of course, some of the, the people in my unit, they also had a hard time they would be on the aircraft and they would fly into the areas where we were at because we stayed on the ground all the time. We never left the ground. We, we stayed in that area. And these AIRVAC teams would come in and they would get a, a manifest of the patients and they knew the ones that were just, you know, organ donors. And even that took a very big toll on them. Did you ever stop and think, as we're listening to this conversation now, Bill, how far outside of your expectations you might have been or uh, I mean, how do you ever prepare for this? But you how, don't. yeah, you don't. I mean, it's, it's, it's situation by situation. I mean, perfectly honest. I mean, you know, uh, point in hand, when somebody's hurt, depending on the extent of the, the injuries, you have what they call a golden window of you got to get hands on, you got to do, a whole bunch of different things and get them stabilized. And, and, you know, because, you know, like with a gunshot wound, there's a lot more to a gunshot wound than the, than the, than the bullet entering the person's body. I mean, the kinetic energy behind that, you know, the gases, the damage that it does to the tissue, all kinds of stuff. We had, I had a soldier come in our area. He was hit by an IED and quite literally, the barrel of his rifle was in a J configuration. That's how bad it bent the barrel. Wow. And he was so shell-shocked, for lack of a better way of putting it, and we're trying to calm him down and get his gear off of him and, and all this stuff. And, you know, he, I mean, it, it probably took us almost an hour just to get him to the point where, you know, what we were talking to him, trying to tell him, it was struck, you know, where it would make any type of sense. But there was a lot of time lost there. I mean, he made it, thank God. But I mean, you know, from the blast, the kinetic energy, the heat, the, the shrapnel, all these different things that, that come into play from a blast. And you've got very limited time. I mean, you know, from a blast, from a bullet, they can cavitate, cause your organs to shift inside your body and so forth. So there's a lot more going on than just, just the wound itself. Yeah, what you're seeing. Yeah, exactly. Oh. So, so now yeah, you're, you're having all, all of these experiences as a medic, and, and, and God bless you, and thank you for doing that, that work. I'm not so sure that everybody in the military could do that work. But in between these different episodes, or, or when you were downtime, when there, when there, was not, there, there were not soldiers to take care of, how did you spend that time in between these different episodes? I don't want to call them episodes, but in between these different times, and when, when there were no, no patients to take care of, waiting for the next patients to take care of, how did you spend your time? Did you guys ever talk about this? Uh, was there any therapy? Was there downtime? Or did you just go about your business until the next wounded came in? Well, that was pretty much it. You pretty much went about your, you know, just tried to find whatever you could, you know, to, you know, to keep yourself... You know, there's all kinds of stuff going on because, again, with a four-man team, you have different things that you got to be involved with on the ground with your team. I mean, you know, when you're doing an airvac, there's a lot to be done. And, you know, making sure that, you know, the, the soldier or, you know, the, the, that 
you have enough supplies to go with that soldier, that they have medicines to go with them for at least 24 hours, that they have food to go with them if they can tolerate food. You know, again, with guys that have been blown up, their, their uniforms are, are shattered. And so we would have connexes loaded with all kinds of different uniforms in them and underwear and all this other stuff. And we would pack these bags and put it with them and make sure they had that. Or, you know, we had to go down to the mess hall and make sure that we had enough meals to put on the airplane. Again, if they could tolerate meals, that they had meals. We had to make sure that, you know, I mean, and this is a team effort. This just isn't me. This is, you know, the four of us. And, you know, making sure that you get the litter set up and making sure all their equipment is with them if they needed a respirator, if they needed, you know, uh, EKG, if they needed, you know, plasma, if they needed, you know, whatever they needed, all this stuff has to come together. And then you got to coordinate the ambulance getting there so you can load them in the back of the, the, the ambulance to get them out to the aircraft at a certain time. You've got to anti-hijack these people so that you make sure they're not taking any you know, firearms, grenades, stuff like this with them. So, I mean, there's a lot going on. And then you've got to make sure that you get resupplied with all the stuff that's going back out. So if they have blankets, you got to make sure that you get blankets, that you have litter straps, that you have litters, that you have, you know, all these different things. But but every one of these, as, as as you're mentioning to us now, Bill, I think about this, you, you mentioned there's a conics full of old, not clothes, but clothes from the wounded and underwear and all these. But but there must be in your mind a representation that these are the things that came from people who were wounded, who are coming from a war, who are coming. I mean, the, we're not at a, a shopping center, you know, buying underwear and sending it to grandma. We're, we're here. This all represents the horrors of war. So in your mind, you're still, uh, I, I'm guessing, still in, in a war mood. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, you never... You know, you mentally never forget where you are, but these clothes and so forth that you have, you know, they're fresh clothes. They've been donated from people over here in the United States. So, I mean, sometimes the guys can't get uniforms and, you know, depending on the wounds and and what they have going on, we got plenty of supplies from people donating things like sweatpants, sweatshirts. There's the, I forget the name of the group, but... God love them. I think they were called soldiers' angels. And they would, they would take and make quilts. And inside the quilt, they've had a little a letter that said, you know, thank you. Um, giving, them, giving them praise, the praise that they deserved for, you know, serving our country and doing what they have to do. And so... For myself, I made it a point that before I put these guys on the aircraft and they were laying on their litter, that every one of them got one of these quilts. Because I think it was really a wonderful thing because when you're wounded, you carry a lot of guilt about that because now your buddies are staying there and you're being taken out. And if something happens to them, you would feel guilty about it. So they feel guilty about being hurt. And I would tell these guys, you know, they would, they would be kind of down in the mouth. And I'm like, you know, hey, what's going on? And, you know, they kind of mumble or whatever. And, you know, some of them or some of them would come out and tell me, you know, I, I can't leave my buddy. I said, look, let me tell you something. I said, you, I know for a fact that you didn't get up this morning and say, hey, I'm going to go get wounded. That's not the way this works. So it's not your fault. 
So let's let's do this. Let's get you well again. Let's take care of you and get you back into back in back into physical shape so you can get back into the game. Don't feel guilty about what's going on. You know, the rest of your team is back there and the guys will look after each other. So, you know, let's let's take care of you now. Okay. And, uh, 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 along this way at this time, how is your sleep? How are, are, are you guys drifting and using alcohol at all? Or anything to help you sleep? Or, or are you seeing changes happen that you're not really aware of? Well, I mean, you know, of course, in most of the conflicts that I was in, they had a general, general order number one, which is no alcohol. So, you know, there goes that. You didn't have alcohol to sleep with. I think one of the hardest things at night is when I was, was off duty because we would take shifts. I think one of the hardest things at night for me was laying in my laying in my rack and and hearing the helicopters come in, and it's like God, here comes some more, you know, because that's what they that's what they were. They were bringing in the sick and wounded, and it was just like, you know, just God for one night, you know, would you just would you just please stop, you know, can we can't it just stop? Wow. And, and during this time, Bill, are, are you staying in touch with your family? Any communication, letters, phone calls? Yeah, I mean, email. We had email capabilities, so we did that. And I know, like one time, my wife said to me, why don't you ever talk about it? And I told her, I said, because my world is ugly. And you honestly don't want to know. So, you know, we breached the subject quite a lot. And then finally, I told her, okay, I'm going to use a certain word for you. I'm going to send you a certain word in an email. And when you hear that word, you'll know that we lost one. And especially my last tour was the hardest. My 2009 tour was the the hardest tour I did. And she she told me when I got home, there was times where I didn't even want to read your emails anymore. And 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 I told her. Your last tour was in Afghanistan, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was at uh, Camp Leatherneck with the with the. I was embedded with the Marines. See, that was the neat thing about the liaison team. It was a multi multi functional team. We could be embedded with the Army, the Navy, the Marines, and of course, we were the first point where once the guys came off the battle line, this is how they got into the AirVac system was through the liaison team. So, so now this is the toughest of your deployments. We're in 2009 yeah. and you're getting ready to leave the military. You've been in by that time, almost 30 years. Or, or Actually, just- no, I wasn't ready to leave the military. I was 49 years old, my last tour. And, you know, perfect. I'm being honest with you when I tell you here, what I wouldn't give to go down range one more time, I would do it again. I would go in a heartbeat and, one of the biggest compliments I got paid was right before they medically discharged me, this one nurse came up to me and she said, if there was any team of people that I would take to me downrange, even despite what's going on with you right now, it would be you. And she mentioned these four other guys because she goes, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that despite what was going on with you, my patients would get the best care. And I just, I told her, thank you because that's exactly what it would be like. I, I wouldn't shortchange these, you know, none of us would. But, you know, these guys meant a lot to me. They meant a lot to me. And they meant a lot to us. And 
So, so what did happen would... that you you eventually received the medical discharge? You're you're at, already at the rank of master sergeant, I'm guessing. Uh, yes. Uh, so you're master sergeant, and you come up against your own medical discharge and are sent home. What were your expectations when all of this happened? Well, first of all, all I wanted to do when I come home was be left alone. You know, I just wanted to get back to some normalcy. And the thing that you know, I left Afghanistan, and I got home. Uh, I touched U.S. soil about three o'clock in the morning, East Coast time. So anyway, by the time I left the airport and and got home, because I had to go to the base and I had to drop my weapon off and so forth, I never got I never got home till almost five six o'clock in the morning, and then I had to be back at base at nine o'clock to talk to this individual who I had never met before, and my son was coming back. I hadn't seen my son. And that was paramount for me to see him. And I'll explain that in a minute. So what ended up happening was I go and I see this individual, never met. And the first words is, you know, what, how are you and what's going on? I said, I'm doing fine. Well, they start, the individual started pushing the issue. I said, look, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I just want to go home. I want to be left alone. And I don't want to talk about it. Well, then, it, you know, they started pushing it even more. And then I got really hot. I said, what effing part don't you understand that I don't want to talk about it? I'm done here. You understand? Leave me alone. You want to talk to me? You want to set up another meeting, two weeks, whatever the case may be? And, and I'll come back and we'll talk about it. But right now, I'm done with you. I don't have to put up with this crap. I'm not putting up with this crap. And that's it. And I walked out. I mean, I was heated. You know what I'm saying? I, you know, first of all, they don't have a clue what I've been through, what I saw, what I did. And now you're going to sit there and you're going to badger me to explain myself to you what's going on with me. My son, I had in over there, we had a lot of IEDs, Kid, a lot of troops hurt by IEDs. It was... 54 quad amputees, and uh, nothing prepares you for that. Nothing. There was a lot of troops that I took care of that were the same age as my kid. Rationally, logically, I knew that he was okay. But there was something going on inside that I had to put my hands on him to make sure that he was intact. And when I finally got my hands on him and I'm touching him and he looked at that look in his eyes was like, holy crap, what is going on here? And of course I was, I looked back at my wife and I'm crying and she goes, you see, he's okay. He's okay. Thanks for listening to part one of this episode. Tune in next week for part two. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Our program is produced by Blueberry Pro Productions. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.